Welcome to Scientifica Radio. I am Brit. I am William. We are broadcasting from 90.3 FM CKUT Radio in Montreal. Today's episode will be on the communication of science. One day a scientific article tells you something. The other day you hear the opposite in the news. It is very confusing. So, are journalists doing a good job at reporting science? To figure it out, we talked to Dr. Joe Schwartz of the Office for Science and Society here in McGill and to Joel Ackenbeck from the Washington Post. But also, how can people recognize which information is more scientifically grounded? In the second part of this episode, Erica Johnson from CBC and Julia Belouz from Vox.com shared with us their advices on how to handle the mass of science news we are immersed in. Finally, new ways to engage with the audience are gaining great reception nowadays. The Body of Evidence, a podcast hosted by Dr. Christopher Labus and Jonathan Jarry, is a good example of it. Stay tuned to the end of this episode and find out more about this podcast that is communicating science in a creative, conversational and humoristic style. Last October, the Office for Science and Society of McGill University organized a series of conferences during the 2016 Trottier Public Science Symposium. This year, the theme was Science and the Media, the challenge of reporting science responsibly. Let's hear Dr. Schwartz. The Office of Science and Society is a university-based uh, endeavor, basically to demystify science, to make sure people are up to date on what happens in the world of science. We hope to foster critical thinking, separate sense from nonsense, and if it all goes well, keep people out of the clutches of charlatans. The Lawrence Rattier Public Science Symposium is an annual event. We, we try to select topics which are of general interest to the public and, of course, to our students as well. This year, we looked at uh, science and the media. Information originally comes from scientific sources in the peer-reviewed scientific publications. But most people, of course, are not adept at reading the peer-reviewed literature or uh, do not have access to it. So what we are exploring this year is the role of the media and what responsible journalism is and why there is irresponsible journalism out there. We discussed about how we, the public, should choose our sources of information and how we could develop our critical mind? This is a very difficult question. Uh, critical thinking is, uh, is very hard to teach. You kind of have to teach yourself, but through guidance by other people. Uh, you have to learn what the scientific method is, how publications work, how research gets done, where one gets funding what it means to submit paper for peer review, who the peers are, and how all of that process works and what it takes to get something into print. And just because you have it in print doesn't mean that it's reliable. Uh, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of journals, not all of equal quality. So why should one trust an article that appears in the New England Journal of Medicine more than what occurs in the Indian Journal of Homeopathy? You have to learn through a lot of experience. And you do need to have scientific backing to be able to, to, you know, discern what is, what is bad. 
So um, we certainly emphasize education as really the vaccine against nonsense. Education is essential, of course, but not only. Dr. Schwartz has to choose his battles. Some people have their minds set on ideas and ideologies. They will never change their mind. But other people are asking questions. Uh, but there is a, also a segment of the population that is legitimately confused because we do live in confusing times. And some of the uh, nonsense sounds very, very compelling. Some of the real science doesn't sound so so great because, you know, the, the, the results are not spectacular. And we always have to say, well, maybe, or I don't know, or, you know, whereas the anti-science people seem to know everything. You know, and uh, so uh, communicating science to the public is a, is a very challenging business. It's a specialty, just like any other area of, of science. Dr. Schwartz emphasized on the challenge that science journalists and science communicators face today. The topics, they are complex. And the fight between science and pseudoscience, or between good and bad science journalism, is quite like a guerrilla according to him. It's a very, you know, it's an interesting area with a, a lot of, uh, of controversy because we deal with controversial topics. You know, when, when you deal with, with certain aspects of health and aspects of agriculture and um, aspects of, of, uh, of nutrition, uh, they're complex topics. And there are never any simple solutions, except by the quacks who know everything and who have, you know. But in the real scientific world, it isn't simple. And uh, that, unfortunately, is not, uh, it's not a very seductive approach for people reading the stuff because they want simple answers to complex problems. They want to be told that if you just eat this food or that food, everything is going to be okay. It doesn't work like that. We live in a complex world. So it's normal that science is also complex. So for each question we answer, a new question will arise. So after talking to Dr. Schwartz, I talked to Joel Aschenbach, who is a senior journalist at the Washington Post. In 2015, he wrote a war on science for the National Geographic magazine. First, I asked him some advice. What can we do to discriminate between good and bad information? So he had a very interesting point. For him, the danger today is in the rise of the partisan media. We're surrounded by so much information. How do you know what's reliable? How do you know what's credible? What most people do is they learn that certain news organizations are reliable. Now, the problem, I think, is the rise of partisan media. So I come from the old school of journalism, and we try to just you know play it down the middle and tell people what's uh, what's most likely to be true and we've we've earned a, a big following at the washington post but at the same time there's been the rise of partisan media so fox news is the classic example it's it's a very conservative 
news source. And, th- and so all their information comes from that bubble, that echo chamber. And I think that that's how many people get their information is from one heavily filtered source. So I, you know, I encourage people to sample widely to to go go wide and look at many different sources of information and figure out what uh, seems reliable and be open to alternative sources of information so that you, you don't you don't get everything from just one one channel and the the distortion of reality by the media has a huge influence on us one of the biggest things that's at stake is your health you know your well-being You know, what do you eat? What what can you drink? You know, what's safe? A lot of people, they become scared of of extremely low-risk phenomena. You know, if, if, you, if you're terrified that your cell phone is going to kill you or that it's not safe to walk near power lines, that can be, you know, damaging to your overall sort of psychic uh, serenity. At the same time, you need to know, you know what happens if you consume certain kinds of you know, drugs or chemicals or things that are that are genuinely unsafe for you. So the part of it is just is just health. Beside of our health, there is also the health of the planet. Of course, nobody is against the environment. But some people think there is a conspiracy. Most people want the environment to be protected, but there are people who think that they're being lied to by some kind of vast conspiracy of scientists who've come up with this climate change idea. I think it's hard when an issue becomes um, part of a political divide and kind of a political tribe. It's, it's really hard to tell people, no, you're wrong about that because they personalize. You know, you know they, they become the kind of person who, you know, believes in this issue. Our people believe this. Those people believe that. The, the only thing that really works is if people find someone they trust who will tell them, the truth about it and and say it is okay for you to believe that humans are affecting the climate and you will not be expelled from your community for believing that is listen to lots of different voices and don't live in in just one little rabbit hole but for Joel Aschenbach there is hope for journalism and young journalists i find that people do trust me as a journalist and i regularly get feedback from readers by email thanking me for doing a credible job sorting through complicated issues. And there's a lot of intelligent people out there who are looking for good information. There's a market for quality information. There's a market for fair journalism. There's a market for accurate journalism. And if you put the extra effort into it, people will notice. Yeah, it's really important to have a great journalism today because we are surrounded by information. And some of those information are good and some of them... Big problem with living in this era of the internet is there's a, just a massive amount of bad information. It often looks the same superficially as the good information. You often can't tell where it came from. You can't, you don't, the origin of it, the provenance of it is unclear. Uh, the, the website might be um, beautifully done, and at first glance, you think, "Well, this is a really um, credible news source." And it could just be quackery; it could just be uh, charlatans run amok. And it, it's hard to tell at first glance, and it's a minefield out there. 
As we see, there is a lot of misinformation out there. The chances of not reporting science correctly are high. You're listening to Scientifica Radio, broadcasted at CQUT at 90.3 FM in Montreal. We just listened to some important highlights on how science can be properly and more accurately communicated. But what if you are not a scientist or a science journalist? Julia Belus, senior health correspondent from Vox.com, share with us some advice. There are a couple things to think about. One is, if you're looking for media sources, very often publications that might be very high quality may still have some reporters who are better than others at covering health and science. So I'd really look for very specific reporters that I that I trust and follow them closely and follow their work closely and see what they have to say about topics that I care about instead of trusting a whole publication. The other thing I'd always look for in studies is who funded them and what biases people who funded them might have. I definitely beware of conflicts of interest in studies. And I also think about dramatic effect sizes are very rare in medicine. So I'm always cautious with those. It sounds like you should have to put an extra effort in determining what has a more scientific base. And indeed, you do need to. However, some clues could help you to determine the accuracy and reliability of some information. When people are promising, you know, this is a miracle cure and this, you know, has a 90% efficacy rate when people don't talk about both harms and benefits. So with every health intervention, there's going to be harms, benefits, risks, trade-offs. And so you always want to be making sure that whoever's talking about a medicine or a treatment, that they're addressing both sides of it. And if you're really into learning more and retrieving more scientific information, you will need to look for, or follow, a specific sources. So that's where I'd look for the media sources that I'd trust and really try to identify people who are going to do that on your behalf. And then when you want to actually go to the primary literature, one thing that's fantastic are systematic reviews. And so these are a type of evidence that brings together all the best studies on a topic And in particular, there's a uh, website called the Cochrane Collaboration. And so they only publish systematic reviews and they have plain language summaries for users. So there's, you know, it's written in accessible language. It summarizes the whole thing. And that's one entry point for people to think about. With a more systematic approach to the scientific information you access, it is likely that you will be more proficient in understanding how science works. But please never forget this simple advice people need to be aware of is that anecdotes aren't scientific evidence, even though we as humans want to respond to stories and things that our friends tell us, that doesn't necessarily equal rigorous scientific evidence. Finally, what should people consider before taking all the information as granted, whether it is scientific or quackery? The fact that all medical interventions have harms, benefits, costs, risks, trade-offs. So those are just some of the basic things that I think you always need to think about. Another thing is, even if it is your doctor, if it is your, you know, friend, 
who's recommending or you're seeing something on TV where they're recommending some new supplement or pill or surgery or whatever it is, you always want to ask for evidence. And you can ask your health professionals that. You can say, you know, you're recommending this for me. What evidence is it based on? Why are you recommending that? So I think that little constellation of tools can be really useful. During the Learn Trottier Symposium, we also had the opportunity to talk with Erica Johnson, who is a national reporter for CBC's Go Public, and also was host for many years of Marketplace, a CBC's investigative consumer program. Erica explained to us the demands of reporting science on TV. I think the challenge of reporting science on TV is that science is often very crunchy, full of facts and figures, and those don't translate well to television. And so what we have to find as effective communicators is a way to convey information that's watchable, that's you know, somewhat entertaining and yet factual. And definitely, as we have listened, there are some hot alerts a person should consider when accessing scientific information. Here is what Erica has to tell us. Beware of the exclamation point. So if you get a study that's got new discovery, exclamation point, well, scientists don't tend to write with uh, these sorts of um, things on their on their press releases. If somebody says it's new, exciting, if there are testimonials in the website, then, you know, often those are hallmarks of a bad study because it's very sort of brashly trying to get at your emotion instead of spelling out what the facts of their study might be. One thing that we always look at when we're looking at a study is who funded it. Is it, you know, a study saying eat almonds and they'll increase your lifespan by 10 years sponsored by the almond industry? Well, then you might want to be suspect about that. So you really have to ask where does the funding for this study come from? How large is the study? Is it something that is actually statistically significant or did they ask three people to drink Clamato juice and then they found that their cancer rates dropped or what have you. You know, there are things, very specific hallmarks of a good study. And once you know what they are and what to look for, they can take you a long way. But really anything that says that it's new, exciting for a limited time offer, get this special wrinkle cream, that's right away, just like flashing lights, warning, warning, this is a scam, you're going to lose your money. But why is it easy to get confused with all this information? You know, I think that what you're speaking about is there's a little bit of information overload right now in society that we see all kinds of things on TV and we don't know whether or not we should believe them or not. One day coffee is good for you, the next day coffee is bad for you. Well, what do I believe? And we see this over and over again. So there's a lot of skepticism around people sort of saying, well, why should I believe anything? Because you guys keep changing the facts. So the importance of understanding the scientific process and how the scientific community works is crucial to make more accurate conclusions. Science is a methodology. It's a way of looking at something. It's not, it can change. You can get new information and then the results will change. So um, science isn't etched in stone because they've discovered something uh, a week ago. It doesn't mean that's not going to always be the case. And I think people don't know there's good science 
and bad science. But as a viewer, as someone watching television and you see somebody telling you to exercise 20 hours a week, well, you don't know, is that really necessary or not? And what I would say is don't ever do something based on one report that you read. Check out uh, what people are saying about it online. Check out who's saying it online. Are they reputable sources? Often on TV, one of the weaknesses is we can't credit our information. So nobody knows where it's coming from. You have to trust the journalist that's giving you that information. And so that's why I think shows like Marketplace that I hosted for 15 years have a very dedicated following because they know how rigorous we are in our research. So, you know, find people, journalists that you trust to to follow. Of course, the internet has facilitated the fast spread of all this huge amount of scientific and pseudoscientific information. However, Science makes incremental discoveries. It's a difficult time for consumers right now because we are being bombarded with all of these messages. For one, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. There is no magic pill you can take to lose 10 pounds. The other thing is that science makes sort of incremental developments. Very rarely is something brand new discovered that isn't bogus. So if there's, you know, if you if you're hearing talk of some new discovery that's never been reported on before. I would also be quite hesitant before I did anything to, to believe that. And as anecdotes are not science, you should also be cautious with celebrities endorsing a product in TV or in any medium. Celebrity culture, unfortunately, can affect what people believe as well, because if you see a celebrity talking about a product, well, then it has to be good because they're a celebrity and they have a lot of power and influence and they wouldn't just walk around saying these things. Well, celebrities are getting paid to lend their voice and their credibility to products. So just because someone's endorsing a product that, you know, beware, that does not necessarily mean that it has any value. We just got some really good advices on how to identify bad scientific information. But Montreal is also home of a science-based podcast, The Body of Evidence. They recorded a live episode during the L'Entrotier Symposium. Let's listen to the intro of the podcast. It's a show about medicine. But the show won't give you autism. The guy you just heard is Dr. Christopher Labos. And the other guy is Jonathan Jarry. He's not a doctor. Hey, I'm sorry if I didn't go to med school. Well, I did. And we're going to look at the evidence behind medical topics. And the show is... Wait, called... wait, wait. No, I, I want to say it. I want to say it. No, no. I want to say it. I want to say it. I want to say it. I came up with it. It's the body of... Body of evidence. It's the body of evidence. You totally stole that from Madonna. Welcome to the uh, Trotty Symposium edition of... The Body of Evidence. As always, I am joined by Dr. Christopher Labos, cardiologist, medical journalist, and man whose teddy bear may or may not continue to be our mascot. And to my left, as always, is Jonathan Jarry, podcaster, blogger, science journalist, and man who, surprisingly enough, tastes like chicken. Everything tastes like chicken, apparently. Uh, so for uh, those of you who are just tuning in for the first time, don't know who we are, Chris, what is The Body of Evidence? The Body of Evidence is a movie starring Madonna that came out around 1991. We don't, we don't, we don't talk about it. We don't That's talk, right. We don't want to alert her lawyers. That's right. In flagrant disregard of copyright law, it is also the name of our podcast where we attempt to explore the evidence behind common scientific questions. 
Yes, uh, and it's more than just a podcast. It's also a whole website. We do videos. We do we blog. We do all sorts of uh, interesting things. And uh, this year, we're here at the uh, Trotsky Public Science Symposium, organized by Dr. Joe Schwartz of, the, of McGill's Office for Science and Society. CKUT Art and Culture Director Tamara Filjevich interviewed Jonathan Jerry. Let's listen to them. Would you tell our listeners a little bit about how your podcast came about and why you decided to pursue podcasting? I'm a McGill alumnus. Uh, I studied biochemistry here. I did a master's in molecular biology. So I have this this website called The Body of Evidence that I'm doing with a, a cardiologist a friend of mine who's also a McGill alumnus. And essentially what we're trying to do is to look at health claims that are uh, commonly, uh, you know, ve- uh, you know, that are out there basically and to look at what the actual scientific evidence says about those claims. Claims. It's not always obvious. There are quite a lot of uh, you know new studies that are popping up and that are being communicated through the mainstream media. We're trying to look at what is actually true and what isn't. And so, when did you feel the need to do that, and why? Both Chris and I sort of started doing this stuff independently of each other before we even met. On my end, essentially, I was um, I was part of the skeptical movement for many years. So this idea of, you know, proportioning your belief to the level of evidence. Uh, so there's there's a lot of stuff out there on, on skepticism. I found this very fascinating. I was in grad school and I was a bit disappointed by the way in which I felt that research was being done in certain areas. Uh, and we had a number of talks uh, where I was that sort of changed uh, a bit my views. One of them was John Yanides, uh, who's a great biostatistician at Stanford University. He wrote a paper that has been quoted, I don't know how many times, called Why Most Research Findings Are False. And it started to show me how just because because something is published in the scientific literature doesn't mean that it's true. And what the media will usually do is that they will look at a new study that came out and think, well, if the study came out, it must be true. But actually, there are tons of ways in which scientists can fool themselves and publish results that actually aren't true. And so I start to look more deeply, deeply into this. I started a blog. And eventually I started a podcast also called Within Reason. And for one of the episodes, I was looking to interview a, a physician here in Montreal who would be ready to speak on the issue of alternative medicine. So things like chiropractic, things like acupuncture, Reiki, and, and these sorts of things. And I found it very difficult to find somebody who had raised a public opinion about this. The only person I could find was Dr. Christopher Lamos. And so we met, I interviewed him on this topic, and we decided to do a project together, and that became the body of evidence. So that's how the podcast got started. And we've been doing it for almost two years now. Would you tell our listeners a little bit about in which ways research may end up publishing results that aren't true because shouldn't they provide experimental data facts references how <laughs> how would it be untrue they give us maybe just a few examples sure sure well i mean i think the most obvious one that comes to mind is of course small sample sizes so when you're doing research you have to you know if you're doing research especially on human subjects you have to recruit a certain number of people if you're doing this on cells using dna samples for instance you also need a certain number of samples if you don't use enough samples you will not have a representative sample so that you're findings will not be generalizable to the whole population. A great example of this that came out recently was this whole power poses thing. I don't know if you saw, the, there was a TED talk about this. There was a researcher who was studying the effect that taking these powerful poses, these expensive poses, has on your confidence levels and your risk-taking behavior. 
And they had found out that, uh, for example, if you do these poses for two minutes before an interview, you will do better on the interview. You will feel more confident. You will take more risks. And that has been, I mean, this has been all over the media. The TED Talks is one of the most, I think it's been seen over three million times. And recently, one of her co-authors actually came forward and said, you know what? I don't believe in this anymore. We made a mistake. And here are some of the mistakes that we made. And one of the mistakes that they had made is what we call p-hacking. And this is a way that, that researchers have of either consciously but often completely unconsciously biasing themselves in a way, which is that they had tested, let's say, 20 people. And then they looked at the results. They said, well, we haven't reached statistical significance yet. Let's test another five people. They tested another five people. Well, we haven't reached significance yet. Let's test three more people. Until just, you know, just they, they've tested enough people that they've reached significance. And then they stop. Mm-hmm. And they go, okay, we've got like the best uh, two out of three. Uh, probability thing a little bit exactly it's a bit like you're playing football one of the teams decides when the match ends you know when the score is in their favor they go oh we're done and that is one of the ways in which researchers can fool themselves and the co-author who came forward great for her she was saying you know i didn't know at the time that we weren't supposed to do this and the thing is that not every researcher has the necessary training to avoid these pitfalls what i like most of the body of evidence is the jingle with which they finish each episode. Listen carefully for the one they did about science communication. Science in the media, I don't believe the hype. Science in the media, I don't believe the hype. Science in the media, I don't believe the hype. Science in the media, I don't believe the hype. In the media, don't believe the hype. We don't. It was Brit Pochet and William Fox. This is Scientifica Radio. See you next week.